Outside the Box. Hello and welcome to December's Outside the Box. Loads and loads and loads of stuff to cram in. I am joined as ever by Mickey. Hello, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> Jen, do you want to mark that out of 10? <laughs> festive. Very festive. Okay. Thank you. Festive right. out of 10. I'll take that. I've been watching loads of stuff, but I've been watching loads of stuff on Sky. So apologies for people who don't get Sky or now. I don't get Sky either now. I just get it on now. That was a well confusing sentence. That was a Lewis Carroll riddle. That was basically you <laughs> channeling the Jabberwocky. But we have also watched quite a lot of stuff on The Babe, so panic not. We might as well start with Succession, right? I know we, we did it last month, Mickey and I. Jen wasn't here. Mickey and I had managed to watch four episodes. I should have listened back to what I actually said, but what I think I said was, and I'm pretty sure I said, that none of them had leapt out to me as brilliant, but I had every confidence the season would get better and better. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be a relatively accurate prediction. Almost every single one has been a, na- a nail-biter. Whether or not the finale undid quite a lot of the tension of those nail-biters, where you thought maybe it was going on a number of occasions, it didn't go. And what it went to it was this epic Greek tragedy at the end in which we all felt terribly sympathetic for a group of people for whom in ordinary life we would have no sympathy for whatsoever. So that is all credit to Jesse Armstrong, Georgia Pritchett, Lucy Preble and absolutely everybody involved in acting in that scene. It was incredible. So I would say a resounding hooray for this series of Succession, I don't know if it tops the second for me. I still love the second series. I just think it is just chef's kiss, beautiful. And this did have a quite sort of slow start, but what it built to was amazing. And my poor, poor little broken Roman at the end of it was heartbreaking. Oh, poor little slime puppy. Let's start with you, Jen. What were your thoughts? You're a more a Kendall kind of gal, aren't you? Yeah, I think think the thing about Kendall is... I find him horribly triggering because I always think he's... I I just think he's on the verge of killing himself all the time. So I think for emotional reasons, I feel an attachment and sympathy for Kendall that I perhaps don't for the others. Whether or not that is just, I don't know. They're all pretty unpleasant in their own ways. I feel like he and Roman have at least some redeeming features... Shiv just has none. She's just the worst person <laughs> in the world. There's like just no humanity in her at all. Worse than Logan. Um, I actually think she's as bad as Logan. I don't mm. know if she's worse, but I think she's as bad as Logan. I think there's there's no humanity in there at all. Although I feel like in the season finale, maybe you got like a flicker of it. Yeah, she felt sorry for herself. No, I think yeah. she I think she genuinely felt bad for Kendall at one point would be my interpretation of what happened. Yeah, they're all they're all awful, but I think the for me the thing that remains compelling about it cuz normally I'm like I have to like someone in it. Do you know what I mean? Like I have to think someone is an all right person. And none of them are all right. Even cousin Greg's a cunt now. Yeah. Like they've ruined him <laughs> as well. Like it's just at least the thing with Arrested Development was it had... Well, actually, it had two good guys. It had Michael and George Michael. Yeah, yeah. Until it came back, and then it ruined yeah. it by making them horrible as well. Yeah, yeah. Not so much George Michael, but Michael went fully awful in the in the other one. But yeah, there there is no George Michael equivalent in this, really. I suppose it was Greg, but... It's gone. They've ruined Greg has it. fallen, yeah. <laughs> but I think that's, you know, that's, the devil. that's the point, isn't it? They They corrupt everything... 
they touch. But I think that the the thing is, it, the compelling thing about it is trying to figure out who's fucking over who. Like yeah. who who is the worst person in this becomes like the yeah. most compelling well, thing. Dame Harriet Walters had a stab at taking the supervillain <laughs> role this She's time. She is incredible. Brilliant. And in, in fact, it's worth mentioning, had a number of really top guest star roles in this series. I thought Alexander Skarsgård was terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, perfect. Great stuff from Adrian Brody, even though it was only he was only in it for a little bit. Pitt Torrens doing what he does absolutely best. The pants wearing sniffer. a toupee this time. Yeah. And a little bit of Stephen Root, who I'm hoping will come back at some point, at some point, because he's like quite high up in the Republican Party machinations, isn't he? Mm-hmm. So we probably will see him again. It's a bit like love, isn't it? Like you let something into your life and then you live in fear of it leaving or, or dying or whatever. It's, <laughs> it's a bit like that. That's kind of how I feel about succession. <laughs> well, well, interestingly, I was saying this to Mickey. I read my favourite TV reviewer that I don't work with. So that's you two out and Paul Kirkby out. But, <laughs> so politeness aside, my favourite TV reviewer is... Um, that lasted is, like three seconds, doesn't <laughs> is Alan Seppenwall, who now writes for Rolling Stone. And he wrote a really good piece about how succession is basically the wire, in that you allow yourself to have hope that a great evil will be defeated. And then at the end, you maybe get a small Pyrrhic victory somewhere. But ultimately, evil will always triumph. There's no, like, moral victory to be had, because they're all so irredeemable. (laughs) There's, there's, There's nothing. So... I guess you can root for your favourite of a bad bunch. I just want Kendall to be okay. That's all. I just want him to be okay. <laughs> my tummy hurts. <laughs> That's what I feel every week. My tummy hurts. Yeah, yeah. I think it's definitely, I would say, top five HBO dramas for me. And by that, I'm going to cheat and say you know, a- actual long-running series, which enables me to take out Chernobyl and take out Band of Brothers. I think it, it definitely, I would I would say top five. And it reminds me of all of them mm, in their own, I agree. In, in, in its own way. It reminds me of The Sopranos. It didn't remind me of The Wild Wire till Seppenwall made that point. It reminds me of The Leftovers in the sort of amount of time it spends with just one person you know, um, really sort of focused on two-handers. And, uh, yeah, of course, it reminds me of Deadwood because Brian Cox is in it. It also, and it's interesting that you mentioned this show earlier in the chat, it's also, I think, reminiscent of aspects of Arrested Development as well. Mm, yeah, and I would also add in Mad Men. It has some Mad Men moments, like the, the, the Kendall revealing what happened to his siblings, you know, revealing what happened at the end of the first series. So we've gone through two full series. You know, that was very Mad Men. I mean, what was Don's real name? Oh, I can't remember. She didn't learn who Don really was until the end of the third series Don of Draper. Mad Men. Mm. Yeah. John Hamm. Uh, oh, no. As in, uh, have you seen Mad Men? No, I oh, haven't. Oh, then he's that he's got a fake it. name. So oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love that you were trying to join in, though. That's a good yeah. spirit. So it doesn't feel the need to, like, shoot its bolt. Do you know what I mean? Go, oh, I've got this information. What am I going to do with it? It will happily sit on information for a really long time, which is, like I say, how uh, how um, Mad Men did it. You've, you've both kind of covered how I feel about the series, and obviously we've talked about it, because we couldn't, we couldn't keep our powder dry and wait to record. We had to have a chat when we saw each other last night. Yeah. And rightly so, listeners, rightly so. What I will add is, 
having loved all of the series that you've just mentioned, Hannah, and, you know, it's no secret that I'm a big fan of The Sopranos, I'm finding it really interesting watching something and then having so much discussion on Twitter, in newspapers, in media outlets of people having all these ideas and bringing like the tiniest details to life. And I can't say whether I'm enjoying it or not, Mm. or whether it's just almost too much and I get a little bit caught up in it instead of, as with The Sopranos, even though I binge watched a lot of that. That, that kind of having to let it settle and think for yourself a little bit more. And while I do that, there is also that temptation to go, oh, what do other people think is going on with Kendall? What do other people think about yeah. this? And it's a real interesting snapshot of where we are as a society now, that we've got this huge forum of people all watching the same thing and all being able to talk about it immediately. And I know the three of us have found that Monday morning Twitter, I, I, or like Monday Twitter, I can't look at it because people are very keen to do spoilers. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I did read an interview with Jesse Armstrong in which he said he doesn't read any of it, which made me really happy because I really don't like the idea that that the mob in any way influences a vision for a television programme. Oh, does this lead you neatly on? (laughs) Yes, Mickey, it does. Because, back, and maybe you'd be surprised to hear, well, you two won't because I told you, but maybe listeners will be surprised to hear, I did actually watch the first two episodes of Just Like That because, hey, it's my job to review television. So, you know, I did. Disclaimer, I have never been a massive fan of Sex in the City. I wasn't when it was a series. I absolutely hated both the films, the second film in particular. So Jen's going to lead this, but I do have views. Okay, I think we probably all have quite a lot of views so and just like that is as hannah says a reboot of the iconic because it was iconic sex in the city series which mick and i were both fans of and Mm -hmm. i quite recently rewatched in its entirety because lockdown and we revisit now 50-somethings Carrie, Miranda and Charlotte, played respectively by Sarah Jessica Parker, Cynthia Nixon and Kristen Thomas, as they live their lives in New York City. Carrie remains married to Big, publishing isn't what it used to be, and she's joined a frankly ridiculous podcast. No. <laughs> Who'd do that? <laughs> Miranda has gone back to uni to study, I think, human rights, something like that. And she is upsetting 20-somethings with blue hair for saying stupid things to her black professor, played by Karen Pittman. And Charlotte remains annoying and married to Harry, played by Evan Handler, who remains, frankly, too fucking good for her and I can't <laughs> make sense of it. Great. Samantha is notable by her absence. She's not there, and we all know why, but she is living in London now, having, ooh, fallen out with her besties. So, what's right about it? Look, there are a bunch of 50-something-year-old women taking centre stage in a TV, you know, a prime-time massive TV programme. And Mm -hmm. fair play to Sarah Jessica Parker for getting that made. Mm -hmm. I don't think that would necessarily have happened you know, 10 years ago, even. Agreed. So fair play to her. And I will say that I think a lot of the stuff that I've heard about it that is negative, more in the run-up than than afterwards, has just been, like, just horribly ageist misogyny. And, you know, it's about, you know, people saying they don't want to see women in their 50s, like, going around having sex or whatever. Okay, well, fuck off. You know, I don't respect your opinion, so see you later. 
So I think that is a big, obviously, that is the main positive as far as I'm concerned. I have seen a lot of criticism of the quote-unquote woke stuff, which I think there's a lot of in different ways. But one thing that I think was quite good, actually, was the stuff with Miranda, where she's upsetting everyone, desperately trying to say the right thing and failing, like, consistently to do so. Because I think that is actually probably a relatively accurate reflection of the insecurity of someone who is getting older who's trying to keep up with the times but doesn't really know how to get it right and I you know I cried a lot so it obviously did something right it evoked some emotions in me that it was yeah that it was like supposed to evoke and I'm not going to say why because spoilers I also think the second episode it got a bit better than the first I think it, it did kind of warm up a bit what's wrong with it Bear in mind, Jen, that we've probably only got half an hour. Yeah, sorry. Uh, (laughs) What's wrong with it? It's not that funny, to be honest, but Mm. maybe it's meant to be a bit more drama than comedy this time around. I don't know. I think the stuff about Samantha, I found really awkward to watch because we do, of course, know that they've had quite publicly a falling out. And I found it almost felt like it was an opportunity to put their side of the... I know it's stupid because it's all fictional, but I thought, I just think they didn't need to do that. I think they could have just done it a different way. It made Mm -hmm. me feel really uncomfortable watching it. And also, and I caveat this heavily with, I I don't know if this is an anti-feminist thing to say or not. Probably you could argue the toss either way. But Charlotte's face... Like, she can do whatever she wants to it. That's up to her. That's her business. But I found it really difficult to have a drama series, a comedy drama series where, you know, SJP has sort of said, oh, there's so much misogyny and ageism and blah, blah, blah. That's why everyone's kicking off about it, which I agree with to a certain extent. But then it's supposed to be about the fact that women become invisible as they age. It's supposed to be about the ridiculous societal pressures that we're supposed to live up to. And it's supposed to be about all those things according to stuff that she has said. All things that I agree with. So I have a bit of a problem with then casting, like, you know, one of your central characters has fucked around with her face in in a bid to kind of, like, remain young to the extent that you cannot see the difference between her laughing and crying. Like, it's impossible to see what emotion she is trying to convey with her face. And... It really, really jarred with me, to be honest. And maybe that's unfair. A slight defence of that, and it really distracted me as well, and I had a similar rant about a character, an actress in a TV programme I watched recently called Close to Me. But yeah, I guess the only defence of that is Charlotte is exactly the kind of woman who would have that kind of surgery or that kind of intervention. Yeah, possibly, possibly. And they did say there, there was there was a nod to it, but it was to do with the hair colour. And Mick, I think you'll probably talk about this in a minute. Miranda's gone grey, by the way. Big just news. let herself go. She's just given yeah. up. <laughs> exactly. They talk about it in like the opening bit of the first episode. And then she says to Charlotte something like, whatever age you're pretending to be or something like that, which I think is with reference to her hair. But you could say, all right and her face but I mean I I find it I feel really genuinely conflicted about that because as I said I don't know if that is a feminist or anti-feminist thing to say you could argue the toss either way but it I didn't like it it's interesting because all of the things that you've just said about it kicking back against ageism when I watched it 
my first thought was it was quite ageist. I think it showed them as, and arguably, I'm going to take Charlotte out of this because I don't think Charlotte ever was in touch with the real world or ever was self-aware or ever was any of yeah. those things. But Miranda, in particular, was shown as, rather than be women in their 50s who'd learnt something, who'd lived through all of the things that you've seen them live through, the ambition of good fiction is to create well-rounded characters. So you would hope that by the end of it, even if I thought that they maybe weren't well-rounded characters, that the ambition at the end was that they had become well-rounded characters. That Miranda had gone to Brooklyn, which was this great thing, and that Charlotte had accepted that she was with a man who wasn't conventionally attractive, although, as you say, why the fuck he is with her, <laughs> I don't know. But then it showed them as just these sort of just blundering, out-of-touch creatures just crashing through the new world. Mm. And it put them in the wrong. And I found the idea that Miranda would go into that meeting and be so crashingly insensitive, I found that a bit patronising. I felt that a bit Mm. like a pat on the head to us old people who can't use an iPhone. I felt like suddenly it was putting middle-aged women in exactly the category that the world currently puts us in so I think it was guilty of doing what it was trying to combat and I think that would be my only view on it I totally get that I feel like they're taking us on a journey and we're at the beginning of it and I hope that the journey is going to be a good one that where they are perhaps a bit more rounded as you say one of the things that really really fucking bugged me right which is a stupid thing. But they like they talk about Carrie doing the podcast and Miranda goes, I draw the line at podcasts. Like Miranda would be on Instagram, but she wouldn't be. Miranda would have been an early adopter of podcasts. She'd have been listening to NPR yeah. podcasts yeah, for, for years. For like 10, agreed. 15 fucking years. This She'd, American like, Life would be the podcast exactly, that she listens to. Exactly. Yeah. She would have listened to Serial. She would know yeah. all about that shit. Like she would have been an early adopter. And that really pissed me off because I was just like, no, that's not her character. What are you doing? That, for me, is, I thought it was mostly not good. But I will stick with it because I think it's also worth bearing in mind that as much as this is on the back of an old series, it is in itself a new series. And sometimes they do take time to warm up. What are they going to tackle? We don't really know yet. And I do have a massive affection for the characters. But what they have done to Miranda absolutely boils my piss she was smart savvy confident she was in touch she made it her job to be in touch she wasn't a blunderer at all and while you might argue maybe she's going through the menopause and that can change personality maybe that'll come up they're clearly hinting that she might have a drinking problem so that's something that they're going to be tackling but that scene where she goes into her new class the whole background of it that she she, she suddenly saw the light and went, shit, I want to help people instead of just being a corporate lawyer, I think is a really interesting story and does strike me as something that Miranda would do. Um, she's up for change. She wants to be current. And while I think actually the people who try hardest to get it right end up with the most shit because they are the ones trying, whereas the people who don't care about getting it right don't care if they're not getting it right. They're not even trying. So that is kind of reflective of how it might go. I'm just like, what have you done to smart, witty, warm, like, confident Miranda? Where the fuck has she gone? Yeah, agreed. It made me really sad. It's like the criticism that have been made about Sex and the City, either because of the just 
abomination that was that second film. Yeah. Or because it was made in the 90s yeah, and yeah. a new generation is looking back at it and reflecting on things that, you know, like it was very white and mm. all of those things. It's tried to fix those problems by basically making it look like it was Miranda that was in the wrong rather than the writers of it. She's absolutely the scapegoat who is paying yeah. for the sins of the past series. And while I think it's important to flag up stuff like it is that the initial series are, are very white when they do tackle stuff to do with race, it's a bit crushing. They get it kind of wrong. Although in America, there are certain aspects that are different to over here, certainly in the nineties. And a lot of people level more criticism at Sex and the City for that than they do at, like, Friends or, you know, mm. How I Met Your Mother and all of the other series that did pretty much the same thing. And part of me goes, is that because it's women? So they just have a go at the one that's got the women in it. But also making Miranda the scapegoat. I mean, maybe you do have to pay for the sins of the past, but why couldn't it have been fucking Charlotte? <laughs> like, seriously, yeah. don't throw your best character under the bus. I would just add, so in in the last Outside the Box, I'd watched the Dexter reboot, Dexter New Blood, and I started off by going, why? Why would you remake it? And I've watched another episode and I still don't know. And I think I am actually going to abandon it. They could have just left it with its terrible finale years and years ago instead of bringing it back. I actually fell asleep in the second episode. That never bodes well, does it? I wasn't even tired, just bored. And I do actually understand why they would bring the Sex and the City characters back because there aren't there aren't many 50-year-old women on the screen. And so I want to keep a little tiny bit of hope that it's worthwhile, that they can they can save this, it can get better. So I'm going to persevere, but it's faint hope at the moment. Well, I'll find out more in January's Outside <laughs> the Box. A couple more things on Sky I'm just going to fire through because I'm the only person that's seen them. Not in the world, just out of the three of us. <laughs> did say in the mail out I was going to have a look at American Rust, even though I'd seen that there were some quite bad reviews of it. Sky, it's on. It's a Showtime series, nine episodes. Nine is the new ten, clearly. Hmm. It's based on a Philip Mayer novel. Jeff Daniels plays a cop who moves to small town Pennsylvania, gets involved with a woman played by Maura Tierney from ER and the... The Affair. The Affair. And she has a son who in turn gets involved in a there's been a murder and he is in some way linked to it and Jeff Daniels is left with the decision of whether he's going to sort of help in this situation by that I mean you know break the law and cover it up nobody's bad in this and everyone said it was really slow and it is really slow and I do love a slow ponderous drama but it's also just another thing about a murder so I I lost interest quite quickly mm -hmm. to be honest but I will say the the son played by Alex Good luck with this, Hannah. Newstad, Newstader, Newstater. Sorry, mate. He plays <laughs> Moira Tierney's son, very much like a Tim Riggins. That's a niche Friday Night Lights reference for you. But yes, I would say actually he is the most enjoyable presence in it, but I didn't stick with it. Something I will stick with is Yellow Jackets, also Showtime. This one's in 10 parts, also on Sky. Background to this. You'll remember this because we were some of the people that got involved in the conversation. In 2017, there was talk about casting a, a female Lord of the Flies. And we were amongst the people that said we didn't think that was necessarily a great idea. Not that women wouldn't necessarily fall into chaos and, and all of that, but they would fall into chaos in their own way. 
and therefore just turning male characters into female characters doesn't necessarily work. Some people were a lot more ardently against it. Um, I think we were sort of a middle ground on it. However... It's never going to catch on, Hannah, the middle ground. (laughs) At this time, Ashley Lyle decides to go and write a female Lord of the Flies. And to say it is that, I mean, it's also a bit of a mashup with things like Alive, the film. Bloody hell, where's this going? Well, a drama that takes place in two time frames in 1996 and in 2021. And in 1996, a group of teenage girls who are flying to a soccer championship in America, they're playing crashes and they get lost and, and they're not found for 19 months. That's what happens in 1996. In 2021, some of them we are following in adult life. The ones that didn't get eaten. Well, some of them is what I'm going to say. I mean, they obviously weren't eaten, but at the point that I had watched the first three, we don't, we still don't really know what happens. So it's a mashup, like I say, of a, a survival thing and a sort of a, a, a Lord of the Flies, but also a murder, uh, almost a murder mystery because you're looking at 2021 and you don't know what happened. So we're coming to meet these characters without actually knowing what they did experience. So that is quite interesting. Mm. 1996 is played like full on horror. 2021 is played more like psychological thriller. And those things knit, knit together very well. Mm. The young actresses, lots of them, who have been in many things, but I don't know what any of them are, so I won't repeat them because I don't think that's going to snare anyone. But as adults, played by Christina Ricci, Juliette Lewis and Melanie Liskey. Yeah, I really like it. It's It's got a schlocky feel to it, but it's also quite fun. And it looks like it's going to approach some questions of what that conversation we had about Lord of the Fries is going to have a, a crack at answering it. So I would say that is... I don't know for you two, because you two are both a little bit like mm. anti Oh, no, I think I want to watch it now. You've swayed me. It's also a high school drama. It's also quite funny in parts. Do you know what I mean? It's a lot of things going on at once, but it's quite enjoyable. I, I want to know if their like definition of when women go feral is the same as mine, which is just eating cottage cheese straight out of the pot without wearing a bra. Uh, maybe, maybe no, I'm going to go happened. full lambs of God when I go feral. <laughs> that's true. Be, you have to become a nun first, but I wouldn't yeah. put it past you. Yeah, no, my best friend said that she's been enjoying it, but that she wasn't sure it would be for me on account of the gore. So I am probably not going to watch it, but it does sound good. Great. Now, one last thing that we have all watched on Sky is Landscapers. Mm. Now, I've seen all three of them because they were on the preview service. I don't know how far. Four? All four of them? Were there four? Yep. I've seen one. Okay. Well, I've watched it to the point that it was the end. So however many of that, I did watch them. Olivia Coleman and David Thewlis playing real-life killers, William and Patricia Witcherly, who were on the run in France and then managed to sort of accidentally hand themselves in for the murder of... Patricia's parents that's sort of the broad strokes it's Mm. actually way more complicated than that written by Olivia Coleman's actual husband Ed Sinclair specifically for her Patricia Witcherly was well into westerns I mean I don't know what that says about people who are well into westerns but we'll move on but also well into sort of French films and it is filmed in this quirky almost European theatre style oh it's so good and it has two really, really great central performances in it. 
what I will say is it is again another drama about a murder and therefore my interest is somewhat limited, particularly since it does its very best to humanise them. And I, I will say, I suppose they're such strange characters, the pair of them, that the oddness of them, the kind of weird relationship that they have, the sort of almost folly adieu situation is interesting, more so than a lot of murders. But I'm ambivalent. I mean, it was good, but I can't say I enjoyed it. I don't have very much to add apart from I did really love it. I loved the way it was filmed and I loved those two central performances and actually all the supporting performances I thought were absolutely cracking too, particularly <laughs> the police. Yeah. I thought were, and brought some levity into it. Oh, Kate, what's her face? Is great. I should know her name. Kate Flynn, who's also in No Offence. She's peeps yeah. in No Offence, but I don't yeah. know the actress's name. I think it's Kate Flynn, yeah. She is cracking, as is Danny Rigby, as her boss. And, yeah, I really enjoyed the way it was put together, and it felt really refreshing the way it was put together, so I enjoyed that. You're absolutely bang on, though, that it's sort of making us sympathise, specifically more with Patricia Witcherly, I think, who, you know, was she abused by her dad and her mum and is she, like, she's retreated into a fantasy world. But I also remember reading about it when it all happened. So it, there was an interest for me there as well. And you're totally right, it's another, it's another murder. I did a bad murder. It's yeah. another murder. But I do think because they approached it so differently, it kept me engaged. But yeah, mixed feelings about whether we should be engaged. Jen? Yeah, I don't have much to add, really. I'm kind of like, I watched the first episode and I'm not sure I like the style particularly. I think the performances are really good, as you say, and also the the police, the characters that, you know, the police um, who are investigating it, I thought were really funny. Sort of similar feelings, really. Like, it's obviously a real-life thing that actually happened. So, should it be funny? I don't know. Hmm. Mm. Olivia Coleman though is so totally fantastic like yeah. her face actually seems to change shape from what Olivia Coleman looks like in this for someone who has such that such dazzling smile just such an animated face I think she's just terrific and I can't even explain what I mean do you know what I mean she just looks just hung she's jowlsy but she hasn't got the jowls yeah yeah She's really great. She's in a new film that's coming out soon that's tipped for big things. And I'm really hoping she might get like a third Oscar nomination. Cause... I don't know how she has the time. <laughs> she does so much stuff. She's making a lot, isn't she? To be fair, it's, it's a real credit to her that she hasn't suffered yet from overexposure, if you know what I mean. Mm. I mean, I'm not bored of her, but it also seems that the general population isn't bored with her either. I think she's yeah. so likable, isn't she? Like as as an actress, it's just how how can you be bored of her? I'm glad we booked her for the podcast all that time <laughs> ago did, when we did because yeah. we'd never fucking get her now. She'd be way too busy. Right, let's take a break and come back and talk about some other bits and pieces that we've seen. <laughs> Hello, welcome back. Hiya. Let's start with you, Mick. Hello. Tell us some more about Outlaws, which we also started talking about last Outside the Box, but neither of us had seen enough of it to have any kind of major opinion. Okay, so the Outlaws, this Bristol set six-parter, which already has a second series in the bag, from Stephen Merchant and Elgin James. It's a really easy watch. 
It's a thriller with a big sense of humour and throws together eight misfits with nothing in common who find themselves working together on a community service project. Seven offenders and their brilliantly belligerent Jobsworth supervisor, Diane, throw in a big bag of drug cash and a just about believable caper ensues. Now, I've said the word misfits there and there Mm. are definitely similarities with Channel 4's Mm. excellent 2009 to 2013 series about five juvenile offenders with nothing in common who find themselves working together on a community service project. But, you know, that's no bad thing. And while Misfits quickly took off in supernatural directions, The Outlaws remains firmly grounded in reality. Mostly, there are moments when the grittier crime aspects of the show don't play as well as the comedy, but it's got a big heart that's clearly in the right place, and it does mean that The Outlaws gets away with it. Having an A-star cast is also key to The Outlaws' success. So headline news went to Christopher Walken as recently released Frank, and he is... Oh, well, he's he's Christopher Walken, being Christopher Walken. He doesn't do an Irish accent or anything stupid, so it's really fun. (laughs) And that's no bad thing. But I've got to say, it is a credit to the script and the other cast members that he doesn't steal the show. I mean, he does steal quite a few scenes, but not the entire show. So Supervisor Diane, played by Jessica Gunning, brings a lovely little bit of David Brent to proceedings. Eleanor Tomlinson's sad little rich girl, Lady Gabby, manages to be sympathetic as well as a spoiled brat. Her dad, whoever's there, the cameo as her dad is absolutely cracking too, but no spoilers. Newcomer Rianne Barreto is excellent as Rani, a super smart overachiever with helicopter parents who starts shoplifting to feel alive. And she spars and flirts really nicely with Gamba Cole's Christian, who isn't all he seems. Darren Boyd's great, Merchant's great, Claire Perkins is great. There's not a duff note in there. And Merchant has clearly excellent comedy chops, which is evident in The Outlaws. But there's also a really kind of wholehearted attempt at social commentary and a bit like the crime aspect that sometimes jars rather than hitting the mark. But I've got to say, Darren Boyd and Claire Perkins as John, a right-wing businessman, and Myrna, a lefty activist respectively, absolutely nail it when it comes to showing that people on the far right and people on the far left actually have a lot in common in how they go about life. So I would properly recommend it. It's probably not going to, you know, change your worldview, but I'm very much looking forward to the second series. Yeah, I watched the first one and I liked it. And I think I said this last time and I just thought I'm going to bank that. Maybe I'll watch it over Christmas or something. You know, ideal. When I'm sitting down and I have a lot of time. It's all on the iPlayer. So, yeah, ideal. My nephew has started watching Misfits. Oh, yeah. You're not going to watch The Outlaws. You're just going to watch The Misfits again. (laughs) First two series of Misfits are great. But after that, I lost interest a bit. So, yeah, it's not that much of a time commitment for me. (laughs) Jen, you watched Shetland, I know, and you watched something else on The Babe. So I watched Impeachment, which I have actually written about a fair bit in recent Bush telegrams. So I'll kind of keep this fairly brief. It is... The third series of the American crime story. I don't know what you'd call it, really. I guess it's a it's Oh, a like series. the OJ thing. Yeah, so they do, they pick a different crime each time and then they kind of have a series on it. Anthology. Oh, okay. Thanks, Hannah. So <laughs> the first one was the OJ Simpson. second one was the murder of Gianni Versace. And the third one is the impeachment of Bill Clinton. So I think it's worth pointing out that Monica Lewinsky is a sort of fairly senior producer in this series. So 
I guess it does look at her like fairly sympathetically, but I think it's like probably quite balanced as well. I think what they've done really well is they've kind of, it's kind of a bit like succession in a way in that the compelling thing about it is you sort of wonder like, who's the dickhead here? It's, it's kind of, I mean, Bill Clinton, obviously very much a dickhead in proceedings because he's played by Clive Owen very, very darkly. And I think, I think Clive <laughs> Owen is... just made Hannah do her uh, pukey face. I think Clive Owen is brilliant in it. I think he plays him really well. I think he does a really good job. So I can't watch it because I don't know if you recall this, but until I watched Children of Men, which is amazing, yeah. like absolutely amazing, I couldn't watch Clive Owen because he actually made me physically sick. <laughs> In... I thought it was Jude Law that you had. Oh, no, I can't. Jude Law, I find terrifying. Oh. Jude Law looks like he's looking through the screen. Like, Jude, Jude Law has the sort of eyes that you imagine, like, someone who climbs in your window would have. <laughs> so specific. Clive Owen, he... In, what's that film? Closer. 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 <laughs> When Natalie Portman is dancing, right, I, I actually oh, I yeah. He's was sick really... in my mouth. He is so repulsive in that scene. Nothing against him, but I'm just saying he's so good at being disgusting that I'm not going to be able to watch he, this. He's really disgusting in this, like <laughs> like really disgusting. And he plays it really well. And his his accent is like perfect. It's brilliant. I didn't know very much about this story prior to watching this because obviously I was quite young when it happened so I knew it was happening I knew he had allegedly had an affair with Monica Lewinsky and I knew that he said I did not have sexual relations with that woman or or whatever it was he said at the time you must know about the cigar and the uh, yes I do I know about this I know about the stained dress and I sort of remember the cigar I didn't know anything about Linda Tripp who is a very central character played by Sarah Paulson, who was also in the first series of American I think Crime, she's in everything Story. that he does. I don't know what that guy's called, but Sarah Paulson is like his muse. She's mm. in everything. She was it Because he also did like American Horror. Was oh, it called did American? he? That yeah, when it's another, series. yeah, they yeah. take and different. she's in all mm. of those as well, yeah. I mean, she's brilliant in it. She's absolutely brilliant in it, and she completely steals the show. And she is the main person, I think, when when I'm talking about, like, is she an arsehole? Isn't she an arsehole? Like, what she does to Monica Lewinsky... So she is the woman who exposes the affair, basically. And she does so by... She sort of befriends Monica Lewinsky, who's been sent out of the White House to work in the Pentagon because the White House staff have realised, like, she's been on a bit too much time with the president and they're a bit worried about it. She's played by Beanie Feldstein, brilliant in it as well. What Linda Tripp does to her is reprehensible. She records their phone call. She gets her to tell her loads of stuff about it. And it's kind of because she's got a bit of a vendetta against the White House because she thinks she's been treated badly by them in a sort of previous and related situation. But she manages to sort of justify it by being like, no, like the public has a right to know about this, blah, blah, blah. And it's really hard to tell is she just an asshole, or does she genuinely believe that she's doing the world a favour by making this public knowledge? And I think she really, really steals the show for me. And I, again, very compelling, and I've really enjoyed watching it. I was going to say, if you are interested in knowing more about because I'm older than you, so I remember way more about mm. it. There is also a really good documentary called The War Room, which I think I've probably mentioned before on other stuff, which is one of those documentaries that sort of, like turned out to be way better than it probably was when they started it in that it it was following around 
Clinton's election campaign, which was at the time run by James Carvel, the raging Cajun, who is like still a political commentator. Um, Stephanopoulos, who is an MSNBC presenter now. Anyway, but then there was a woman called Flowers, I think she was called Paula Flowers, and that story breaks during the election, and that's when they made Hillary go on TV. Paula and, Jones. Like, say, I stand by my... Paula Jones. Yeah. Yeah, I stand by my man. And, and actually, that kicks off in the middle of this documentary while they're making it, so it actually turns out to be really great, and it's how they managed to turn that round and still get Clinton elected. So, yeah, I mean, he had his dick out all the fucking time, Bill Clinton, <laughs> all the time. Yeah. I was just going to say that um, the other day I got home and told Gary that I was the Monica Lewinsky of runners, and I actually meant Monica Sellers. Uh <laughs> <laughs> so, you've also been watching Shetland. Tell me about that. I have, yes. So, Shetland is based on a series of novels by crime writer Anne Cleves, who's also responsible for ITV detective series Vera, or at least the central character in that series. Shetland focuses on D.I. Jimmy Perez, played by Douglas Henshaw, who investigates crimes on the eponymous archipelago. Oh, I can't say that archipelago. either. Archipelago. Archipelago. Oh, Thank collection you, of islands is easier. A collection of islands, yeah. you know, a bit around Scotland. Anyway, we've been back for a sixth series where a troubled Perez is called into work literally moments after burying his mother and sort of realising that his dad has dementia. And this is after the mysterious shooting of local lawyer Alex Galbraith. But who done it? There's twists and turns, including Afghan war trauma, refugees and an unsolved, well, unknown historic murder. And at the same time, Perez's Bezzy, Duncan, played by your favourite Mickey, Mark Bonner. I don't know if he's your favourite. I love Mark Bonner, yeah. Big heart shape for Mark Bonner. They, like, share a kid, don't they? Me and Mark Bonner, yeah. He is the... Have you watched any of the others? Can I just ask, Jen? Yeah, I'm getting to that. Oh, right, okay. Um, So, here's Bezzy Duncan who's also the biological father of his daughter Cassie, becomes embroiled with one of his exes, Donna Killick, a woman convicted of the murder of a local woman who's been released from prison to die in her home because she's got terminal cancer. But that bitch wants revenge, leaving us on a tantalising cliffhanger. So I actually only started watching Shetland in series five, I think because I think it was during lockdown, possibly, and I literally had nothing better to do. So I was like, ah, oh, fuck it. I might as well watch this. It never really appealed to me before. So there are some things that I don't fully understand in terms of the relationships, like the fact that they sort of share a daughter and Donna. I think Killick. they were both married to the same woman. I, I, I saw like maybe the third series of it. Um, Why have you both forgotten how to watch television? <laughs> because I was—I literally watched it out of desperation for something to watch. I didn't think it was like for me. Well, in my defence, I'd have started at the start if I was going to do what Jen did. I watched it when uh, that series when I was basically living with my mum, mm. um, so it was just on, and I saw that series. And I will say, maybe it wasn't the third—I don't know—but I will say uh, the the character Tosh. Yes, the female detective in it was actually like seriously sexually. Well, she was. Yes, great. yeah, I've and read they about actually that. dealt with it. I thought they actually dealt with it really sensitively and quite well. But that is the only series that I've I've ever seen. So basically, yeah. So I don't understand like the full ins and outs of all of the relationships. I really like it actually, um, and I don't think you need to have watched the previous series 
to enjoy it. And it is, it, I think it said at the end of it that it will be back for another series next year, which I'm delighted by. I recommended it to my mum. I think it's quite gentle as crime dramas go. It's not too graphic. There aren't like loads of naked dead women everywhere. Perez isn't like senselessly angry. It's sort of like the anti-Luther. Um, <laughs> on on that note, it's not the most diverse in terms of its casting, but they have brought in some new characters, and I guess it's reflective of the demographic of the Shetland Islands. I don't know. Yeah, I think yeah. Reiki Iola was in it. Last she was. Yeah, series, she was in the last yeah. series. Yeah. How do I know this stuff? How do you know Hannah's this stuff? Hannah's a secret like Shetland fucking... fan. She watches it while expert. asleep. Yeah. You're an expert on Shetland. Osmosis. I don't know. So I think, I think the cast is really great and I like it. And I will go back and watch ask... series one to four at some point when there's less new stuff on telly that I want to watch, basically. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair dues. I watched something on the BBC... David Baddiel's made another documentary, this one called Social Media, Anger and Us. I think it was on one night this week, um, but it'll probably hang around on the iPlayer for a year or something. But it's well worth watching. And he's looking at social media and what it's doing to us, which is an evergreenly interesting topic. And I think he makes interesting documentaries, but I think he has... He makes ones about something he's got to say about, and I think he has put up with a fair amount of shit on social media and he talks about not too much because he has covered like anti-semitism quite substantially in the past but he he does sort of openly address the issue of you know blackface and how many times he has apologized for that and you know that feeds into the question of you know cancellation or he calls it call out culture what that says about our willingness to even accept an apology or what is it the mob is seeking are they do they even want an apology which i find all of that stuff really really interesting Mm -hmm. he talks to a lot of people that we like if you're looking for people you agree with then then maybe this is the place to go including a number of friends of the show cat rosenfield professor sophie scott sally hughes ian leslie who's mail out we're always plugging that's called the ruffy and that's always a great read aisha i can be who mick and i saw talking not that long ago and we love her uh, phil wang being very interesting yeah i think it's really really interesting also david Badil's daughter dolly who apparently has suffered from anorexia recently uh talks about sort of social media pressure from that point of view yeah i liked it i don't think it has any answers but I think it's a question always worth asking. There's been a couple of high-profile child murder stories in the last oh, couple of weeks. Horrific. Mm. I saw quite a number of people tweeting the same thing, which was that they wished that Charlie Brooker's white bear was a real thing. And I find that absolutely fucking terrifying, like genuinely terrifying that satire is is becoming real. And Is white bear the one with Michael Smiley in it? Yeah. Oh, oh. I don't want to do a spoiler. No, no, for that's it why I asked it that it. way. Mm. But yeah, it terrifies me that a mob justice satire is now playing out in real life, or people want wishing it existed. Anyway, so yes, well done, David Baddiel, for continuing to poke the beehive. There. Not, not. Do I mean beehive? Hornet's nest. Hornet's nest. Yeah. <laughs> Be- bees are nice. Beehive is, yeah. Beehive is also the name of uh, Beyonce's fan, and you don't want to piss them off, mate, believe me. <laughs> 
Well, that's what Sally Hughes is talking about. You know, now there's a whole industry that in terror, not an industry because I don't think it makes any money, but there is a whole hobby group of people who just like to pick on one person and tear them down. Mm. Like Tuttle Life and all of that. that yeah. Well, that's exactly what they were talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's horrific. Well, I'm going to watch that. But before I watch that, I'm going to watch the the advert that Phil Wang superimposes himself into alongside Tom Hiddleston because it's fucking hilarious. <laughs> the <sex> from adverts. <laughs> Brilliant, so isn't good. it? Yeah. Who's got something else to say? I have watched one other thing. I've mostly watched one other thing. So I've seen four out of five episodes of the second series of Kaylee Cluellen's multiple Welsh BAFTA bagging comedy drama, and I am officially removing the comedy descriptor. Uh, that isn't to say that there aren't still moments when Bethan, played to absolute perfection by Gabrielle Creevy, makes me loll out loud, because there are. But there are less laughs than in season one. And I have to be clear, this isn't a criticism. In My Skin is, in my opinion, one of the best things on television with an emotional heft that means I can't I can't binge it. It's all there to be watched, but I can't. And that's why I've not watched all five episodes yet. The gut punches mean you need to take a break to get your breath back. So to recap, Bethan, played to perfection by Gabrielle Creevy. And yeah, I know I already said that, but fucking hell, she is incredible. It's a 16-year-old growing up in Cardiff. City of Roundabouts, apparently. She's smart and funny. Hey, that's Milton Keynes. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, it's Nick's title. That's the only thing we've got. <laughs> she's showing someone the sites and they're just like, is it just Roundabouts? And she's like, yeah, pretty much. And she's smart and funny and insecure and vulnerable and talks back to the teacher despite being head girl and lies to everyone because her mum, Trina, and I, I cannot, I cannot emphasise enough how Joe Hartley is simply devastating in this role. Trina has bipolar disorder varying between loving and unbelievably cruel in a heartbeat. Oh, and Bethan's dad is a drunk, deadbeat, violent man who she very much fears will try to kill them if they try to leave. Rodri Miller is also excellent because I full-on hate him and tense every time he's on the screen. So, scared of rejection if her friends knew the truth about her home life, Bethan keeps dumb and holds her mum and the scraps of her life together with a little bit of help from her nan. If this all sounds too unbearable, it, it sometimes is. But oh, the, the writing is just perfect. It balances hope and heartache on a tightrope in every episode. And right now, at the end of episode four, Bethan has a little joy in her life in the form of Cam, Rebecca Murrell, her first proper girlfriend, and someone she has decided she can trust with her secrets, which means she's finally getting to talk to one of her peers about it. It feels hopeful. And that is why I am genuinely nervous to watch the final episode <laughs> and will definitely have a box of tissues handy when I do. It's just, it's so, so good. Well, that sounds both good and awful, but awful in a good way and good in an awful way. And, and there yeah. are moments of levity, I have to, I have to say, because it's also a coming of age story. And she's mm. just, I don't know if I've stressed this enough, but she's just fucking great in it. She's so good. Anybody got anything else? No, that's me. Okay. In that case, I just want to say two things on top of watch all of the stuff that we have told you to watch or not to watch or, you know, make your own choices. Again, it's never going to catch on, Hannah. (laughs) (laughs) It's two other things that we'll to look forward to that may actually start before we do the next one. Well, one of them definitely will. There is a Ghost's Christmas special. Yay. Always a big hooray for that. And secondly, I'm not quite sure of the date of it, but I believe it is the first week of January upright is back on sky oh oh 
Yes. Mr. Minchin. Tim Minchin's glorious. Again, what is it? Is it funny? Is it terrifying? Is it a dramedy? Really heartbreakingly sad. <laughs> sad yes. com. Yeah. All of those things. Okay. Merry Christmas. Goodbye, ho, ho, ho. Doesn't work as well. <laughs> Outside the box.